Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To go to kids' worship. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. Many of our culture's famous stories or movies center on the main character who starts out well and then has a tragic downfall. Now, you guys know that I can't go a few years without giving a Star Wars illustration. So nothing is more popular than the Star Wars saga, where Anakin Skywalker turns into Darth Vader. Now, in Star Wars Episode One, Anakin's a little eight-year-old boy, and he's whimsical, he's inquisitive, and, and everybody thinks he's the chosen one, except for Jedi Master Yoda. He has some suspicions about Anakin. In Episode Two, Anakin is growing up. He's a young man, and he's living in the shadows of his master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he doesn't quite like to follow Obi-Wan's lead. And then in Episode Three, Senator Palpatine manipulates Anakin to turn to the dark side. And it's kind of actually scary because Anakin goes from being this little Jedi knight that you find out in episode one to actually killing children with his lightsaber in the Jedi temple. He has the seething hatred for Obi-Wan Kenobi. In the end, he is burned with fire on the lava planet of Mustafar, and he is reassembled as more machine than man as the evil Darth Vader. It's a classic tragedy of someone who starts well and ends in a disastrous downfall. And we scratch our heads in disappointment when we see something like this happen, when we see this tragic downfall. Perhaps you have someone in your life who has gone through something like this. At one point, they profess faith in Christ. They maybe have walked with Jesus, but now they're walking in rebellion. They've turned their back. They could care less. It's a punch in the gut to us when we see someone start out so well and end so badly. Now, why do I bring up this situation this morning? Because we're going to see the downfall of Gideon. We've been looking at the life of Gideon the past two weeks, and he started so well. And you get to chapter 8. And actually, when I get to chapter 8, I get upset with Gideon. Like, why, Gideon? Why do you do this? And then as I was thinking about it, why am I so upset with Gideon? Because for the grace of God, there go I. I could be just like Gideon, if not for God's grace. So last week in chapter 7, we saw that God had to teach Gideon and the Israelites a lesson by winnowing this army down to 300 men so that they would learn to have... Dependence upon God, not prideful independence, but humble dependence upon God. And they they would be tempted to boast about their own victories, about their own accomplishments, and they would rob God of His rightful glory. And so God got the glory for defeating the Midianites. But as we left the end of chapter 7 last week, the battle's not over. 
Gideon has to face three more enemies. Actually, four, but I'm going to leave you hanging on the fourth one. Four more enemies. The battle's not over. You thought the battle was over with the 300 men fighting? Actually, they didn't fight. They just broke their jars and blew their trumpets, and God won the battle. So let's pick up in chapter 8, and we'll see these three enemies that Gideon has to face head on. Chapter 8, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you've done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Now, I'm going to use a term that maybe some of you know what I'm talking about, but Ephraim, that tribe, they were acting like prima donnas. They got their feelings hurt because they weren't invited to the party. Basically, they got upset with Gideon. They got in Gideon's face and said, listen, we missed out on the glory. How come you didn't let us in on this glory of defeating the Midianites? And they got really upset. And they, so they were frustrated they were not in on the glory. Now, what's the irony? You remember last week in chapter 7, verse 2, God says, the reason I'm teaching you this lesson is so you won't boast over me. You won't boast over me. And what is Ephraim doing? They're upset that they did not get to boast in their own power. So Gideon cools them down. He gives them kind of a parable in verse 2. I can kind of paraphrase the parable for you. He basically says, hey, Ephraim, you've got the best grapes in the land. I'm just a nobody compared to you. You're this great tribe. I'm this lowly leader. You guys are the bomb is basically what he's saying. And basically, their, their, their anger subsides. Gideon knows in Proverbs 51, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So the main issue for Ephraim was pride and insecurity. They wanted in on the action. They wanted all the glory. Now, do we often struggle with insecurity? Do we often act like prima donnas? Do we get frustrated when when others do well and we feel threatened when other people are successful, other people get the attention? Do we kind of get jealous when we see other people succeeding, frustrated? How come I don't get the accolades? How come I don't get the attention? Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Marcus, don't be worried. I'm not coming down to talk to you personally. I'm coming down to get some Kleenex. Okay. When the pastor walks down to somebody and they're like, whoa, is he coming to talk to me? No, I'm just getting a Kleenex because I'm battling a little cold here. So. So enemy number one was Ephraim. The prima donnas who wanted in on the action and felt insecure that they weren't invited to, to boast. Okay, enemy number two, these two towns, Succoth and Penuel. Don't say that too fast. Let's keep reading what happens here. Pick up in verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, For they are exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna. 
the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zelma were in Karkar with the army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who had drawn the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmanah fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmanah, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmana already in your hand that we should give you bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught them men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. When he said to Ziba and Zalmana, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabar? They answered, Are you as you are? So they were. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you've saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is the strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmana, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. All right, what's going on here? So Gideon moves on, and his 300 men are exhausted. And he goes to this town of Succoth, and he says, Hey, guys, can you give us some bread? And they're suspicious of Gideon. We don't want to give you bread. We don't want to get involved. If we get involved in this, we are in trouble. And by the way, have you captured these kings yet? Until you capture these kings, we're not going to help you. We're suspicious of you, Gideon. You need to show us something. So Ephraim was upset they weren't invited to the party. These guys are upset that they're even having to get involved in the first place. So Gideon has to deal with his own people, the Israelites. Some who are prideful, others who are suspicious. And Gideon does something interesting. He basically says, how dare you question my leadership? When I kill these kings, I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to thrash you with briars. I'm going to tear down your tower. Now, does that sound like a spirit-empowered, humble leader? What's going on here with Gideon? That sounds like a change in his personality here for a little bit. So Gideon makes good on his words. When he comes back after capturing these kings, what does he do in verses 16 and 17? What does it say? He took the elders of the city, he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He killed his own people and beat them with thorns. 
and tore down their towers. Now this is the first time there is Israelite on Israelite violence in the book of Judges. This is not Israelite violence on a pagan nation. This is Israelite violence on a fellow Israelite. And sadly, this is going to be what happens throughout the rest of the book of Judges. Judges. Now, what's the application for us today? What does the New Testament teach us about how Christians should treat one another? It was read earlier. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. It's a very tragic thing to see Christians biting and devouring one another, tearing each other apart, attacking one another. The Bible says to love one another, to serve one another, to humbly come before one another and to be compassionate, not to bite and devour. That sounds like language reserved for wolves. What do wolves do? They bite and they devour. Now, Gideon, after doing this treacherous act of thrashing these men and and killing the men of the city, tearing down their tower, I'll, I'll teach you a lesson. He goes to these kings and says, who did you guys kill? And what does Gideon find out? His brothers were killed. So Gideon is moved by retribution and revenge at his brother's death in battle. Basically, he says, an eye for an eye. You guys killed my brothers, I'll kill you. And in verse 20, he doesn't do it himself. He gets his his son to do the dirty work for him. What does he say to his son? Jether. Hey, Jether, do my dirty work. Kill those two kings for me. And what does the son do? I I don't want to do that. He didn't have the stomach for it. So Gideon goes himself and basically assassinates the two kings. Gideon is not acting like a humble, spirit-empowered leader that we first found cowering in fear in the wine press, doubting his abilities. Remember last week, God had to reassure him four times. I reassure you four times to lead the people. Now, what's happened to him? Has success gone to his head? He is now acting as an out-of-control general, lashing out in rage and revenge. And so we see a rapid, a quick degradation and downward spile of Gideon's character. He starts out as a man of humble dependence to now he's a vindictive, violent man bent on revenge. Gideon's first enemy was Ephraim. Hey, Gideon, how come you didn't let us in on the action? We're upset with you. Second enemy, these two towns, Succoth and Penuel. We're suspicious of you, Gideon. We don't quite trust you. Well, if that's the way you're going to act towards me, you're gonna have, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And then Gideon has to face the third enemy. And it's maybe not what you think. So let's read about enemy number three. This is the entire nation of Israel. Did you hear me? Not the Midianites. Not a paganite. The termites. Israelites. 
What do they do here? Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city of Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian subdued, was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Oprah, of the Abizurites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. So Israel is so impressed, the nation of Israel is so impressed with Gideon's leadership, they want to make him king. You need to be the king. You won this battle with 300 men. You've defeated our enemies. Gideon, you're the man. We want to make you king. And not only you, we want your sons to rule after you. We want to set up a dynasty of kings. And at first glance, Gideon appears like he's humble and refusing it. And he does say to them in verse 23, what does he say? He says in verse 23, I will not rule over you. My sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, sadly, this is the last time I think that Gideon truly understands who God is. It's the last time Gideon utters the name Lord and gives credit to the Lord. So Gideon may have, quote-unquote, officially turned down the offer to be a king, but by his actions, what does he act like? What have we seen so far in this chapter? He's acting like a king, but a bad king. He's ruthlessly beating his fellow countrymen. He's driven by revenge and personal ambition. He's asking his son to be his, do his dirty work. And then he takes the symbols of kingliness, the pendants, the purple cloths, all these symbols of royalty, and he assembles this ephod, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, you need to understand something. God did give directions to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 17 for what a king would be. Israel was ordained to have a king one day. And God wrote out in Deuteronomy 17 what that king was supposed to be like. And there's five things that that king had to, had to abide by. First of all, God had to choose the king. 
The people could not choose their own king. God had to choose the king. Second, he could not accumulate for himself many horses. Thirdly, he could not accumulate for himself many wives. Fourth, he could not accumulate for himself much gold and silver. And number five, most importantly, he had to have a copy of God's word by his throne and by his bed to guide him in making decisions as king of Israel. Now, what do we see Gideon doing here? He says, guys, give me your trinkets, give me your earrings, give me your gold, and let's assemble it here. And it's 1,700 shekels. That's 43 pounds. That's excessive back at that time. And he makes an ephod. You're like, what's an ephod? It's not an iPad or an iPod. It's an ephod. What's an ephod? An ephod, if you go back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, it was this priestly garment. The high priest wore this special garment. And this garment had 12 stones embedded in it, and and only the priest could wear this garment. It was specially designed for the high priest, and he could only wear that garment when he went into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle next to the Ark of the Covenant, and he would pray on behalf of the people, and there would be a pouch in the garment with the umen and thurum, which we really don't know what the umen and thurum are, but anyway... This is something that only the Levitical priest was supposed to wear. So here's the question. Was Gideon a Levitical priest? No. Then why in the world is he making an ephod? Do we have any mention of the tabernacle here or the Ark of the Covenant? No, as a matter of fact, that was supposed to be in Shiloh, a town way far away. Why would the priest wear the ephod? Well, Numbers 27, 21 tells us why the priest would wear the ephod. And he, that's the priest, shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So basically the ephod was this special garment reserved only for the priest where he would use the umen and thurum, whatever those things are, to get supernatural direction from God to lead the people. Now, Why is Gideon making for himself an ephod? Again, pride goes to his head. You know, that was pretty cool, having an army of 300. But we won the battle. And if I'm still going to be the man, I need to dress like the man. I need to have the mojo of the man. I need to be the channel through which God speaks to the people. In other words, Gideon wanted more than what God had given him. Now, he refused to be the king. I'm not going to be your king, but I'm going to make myself an ephod and be your spiritual guru instead. I'll still be in charge. I'll still be having all the attention. I still will have the special anointing. I'll be God's direct spokesman. I'll still be the man. I won't be king. That's, that's way too much. That's too much to ask. But I'll create an ephod and I'll be your man. Here's what Gideon should have done. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to thank God for winning the battle with the 300 men. And I'm going to live the rest of my life in obscurity. That's what he should have done. But he said, no, I want the attention. And he sets up a new place of worship. Shiloh, the town, was where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant was. 
But you look there in verse 27. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city of Oprah, and all Israel whored after it there. That's a strong word. Symbolic of spiritual adultery. They were obsessing over this ephod. And as I was thinking about this, here's the sad reality about, real, about idolatry. This ephod, if you think about it, it was not something satanic. It was not something that would have been unthinkable to the Israelites or horrific. Gideon took something that God ordained good, an ephod, which was good for a specific purpose for the priest, and he turned it into a cheap substitute. See, that's the tricky thing with idolatry. Idols don't have to be satanic, horrific things. Idols can be good things. A family, a job, a career, a sport, a relationship, things that in and of themselves are good. But when you elevate them to obsession, where God takes the pl- or they take the place of God and become your gods, then they become a snare, as it says there. A snare to Gideon and his family. When you obsess over your idols, they become a snare. Now, what does a snare do? It traps you. It ensnares you. It enslaves you. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes idolatry. He says this, Those things which we allow to take the chief place in our hearts have the most power to give us grief. When you make an idol out of something and you elevate it and you obsess over it and you want it, what does Charles Spurgeon say? It's only going to bring you grief. It's only going to let you down. It's only going to ensnare you and enslave you. It's only going to bring you heartache. Now, we see some ironies emerge here at the end of Gideon's life. The nation's at rest for 40 years. Look at verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years. Woo-hoo, 40 years of rest. Peace. Well, yes, there's no foreign invaders coming in like the Midianites. But let me ask you a question. Is it 40 years of true peace? In the proverbial words of Pink Floyd... They're comfortably numb. I have become comfortably numb in my sin. Forty years. Now remember the pattern with the judges. When the judge was alive, the people towed the line. The people obeyed. Remember that judge was kind of like I said, it was like a dam. He was like a dam holding back the water of sin. And when that judge died and when the dam was, was, when the, when the dam was released, they went back to their sin. This is the first time that Israel continues in idolatry while the judge is still alive. Gideon's still alive. And they're all whoring after this ephod. That's irony number one. Irony number two is that Gideon is engaged in gross polygamy. He has many wives and concubines which is precisely the opposite of what Deuteronomy said a king should do. 
What makes him think he can get all these wives and concubines all of a sudden? And then third, we'll find out this next week. He names his son Abimelech. You may think, well, okay, that's a weird name. Okay, do you want to know what Abimelech means? My father is the king. (laughs) Some of you got it. (laughs) I don't want to be king, but I'm going to name my son, my dad's the king. And it's not really a legitimate son. It's a son from a concubine named my dad, the son of the king. Now, I mentioned Gideon had three enemies. Enemy number one, the Ephraimites, the prima donnas that didn't get invited to the party. Enemy number two, those two towns where they were suspicious. And enemy number three, the nation of Israel that wanted to make him a king. But who's the true enemy? The greatest enemy that Gideon would have to deal with was the one looking back at him in the mirror. Himself. It was a spiritual and internal battle to kill pride. And so the life of Gideon leaves us with a plaguing question. How can a godly person go downhill so quickly? How can Gideon turn on a dime from being this fearful, unassuming, afraid young man that has to be reassured multiple times, then God winnows down the army to 300, and then he, he leads in the victory of the Lord, and then he turns. He becomes vindictive and violent and an, an idolater and a polygamist and all these things. Now, we may not understand all the theology of how the ancient Israelites lived the Christian life and the power of the Spirit. Okay, I, I'm not going to get into that. But we do know what the New Testament teaches. We may not know how... Gideon internally battled with sin, but we do know what the New Testament teaches. So Galatians 5, 16-17 says this. Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are a true Christian, you're always going to battle your flesh. And Romans eight thirteen says this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen has famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In Romans 8, 13, Paul says, kill sin. Put sin to death. And that word, put sin to death, was used of execution. You've got to deal violently, ruthlessly, consistently with the sin in your life. It's an ongoing battle. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 26, 40-41? He came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Now, you will never ultimately kill sin in this life. So don't ever get to the point where you think, I'm never going to struggle with sin. You will struggle. Hear me, okay? I'm not going to lie to you. You will struggle with sin for the rest of your life. So you're never going to ultimately put sin to death. You will have periods of victory. You will have periods of success. You will have periods of of obedience. But, But don't expect to ever get sin out of your life until you step foot into heaven. The moment you think I'm never going to struggle with sin is the moment that you're most vulnerable. 
When I think I've beaten it, when I think I don't have to struggle with it anymore, that's when the devil comes in because you become over, overinflated. 1 John 1, 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, kill sin. Let me, let me, let me, let me tell you what it's not first and then I'm going to tell you what it is to kill sin. Romans 8.13, kill sin, put sin to death. Okay, what, what it's not. Killing sin is not a casual, inconsistent, or cosmetic makeover of your sins. There's nothing casual about it, there's nothing inconsistent, and it's not a cosmetic makeover. You see, what the Bible often talks about are root sins and fruit sins. Those root sins are those sins that are deep down in your heart that a lot of not, most people don't see. Pride, anger, lust. Fruit sins are those outward sins that you can kind of control. Putting sin to death does not mean that you deal with the outward actions. It means you get to the heart of the matter. So if you're going to kill sin, you've got to get down to the root of those sins. It's not just cosmetic makeover. It's actually getting down to the root. So, what does it mean to kill sin? Let me give you some, some teachings here. First, we must have a seething hatred for sin as the destructive enemy it truly is. You've got to see sin as an enemy, and you've got to hate it. Romans 12, 9, abhor, that means hate. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. How has sin damaged you in the past? How has sin reared its ugly head in the past? How has it inflicted damage on you in the past? How has sin gone good for you in the past? It's only when you pull that sin out and say, this is wicked, do you begin to actually put it to death. You've got to see it as the enemy that it truly is. And when you see it as the enemy that truly is, you've got to hate it. Okay, second, we must know our particular areas of weakness and avoid situations that make us vulnerable to temptation. We all have particular areas of weakness. Don't go there. Don't be in those situations. Listen to what the Proverbs says, Proverbs 5, 3-8. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to the death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Notice how the Solomon says, don't even get near it. You must take every precaution to stay the maximum distance away from this forbidden woman because the moment you get close to her door, you are going to get seduced. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. See, really what it means is, is when you're constantly killing sin, this is called repentance. You're slowly, gradually weakening sin in your life. You see it for what it is. You don't fall into those temptations where you're going to be vulnerable. But then we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to fall into the error of this being works-based. Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit, kill sin. So here's number three. 
We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sin. You have a responsibility to kill sin. But the only way you can do that is through the Holy Spirit working in you. So any success you have, any transformation you have, any, any fruit that comes from this is because the Holy Spirit has done it and He gets all the credit. Philippians 2, 12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, not work for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's just another way of saying put sin to death. Okay, verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, Working out your salvation means you kill sin, but you kill sin by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. We must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Now, can those who are truly Christians, those that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can they fall so quickly into idolatrous sin and serious sinful habits? And I would say absolutely. We saw it with Gideon. He started so well and ended so badly. So how do we avoid this tragic error? Well, you need to constantly trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the Spirit to give you strength in your weaknesses to deal with sin head on, to kill it. Not merely to wound it or hope it goes away or divert it, but to kill it. So let me just ask you a question. Because we're thinking about Gideon's life. This is the end of Gideon's life. He dies. How will you end will you end well it's not how you start the race but how you finish it how do you run the race of faith and kill sin in your life Hebrews 12 1 and 2 therefore since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Okay, so how do we run this race? Looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish the race. Many tragically start well and end badly. So how do you and I run the race? We keep our eyes laser sharply fixed on Jesus. And we trust in the Holy Spirit to work in us to kill sin. And when we fall down, the Holy Spirit picks us back up by His grace and keeps our eyes back on Jesus. How will you end. May we all end well for the glory of God. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. We look at the life of Gideon. We, we're frustrated. We're, we're saddened. We see a man who started so well and then ended so badly. And it's easy for us to point fingers and say, wow, that would never happen to me. But Lord, our battle is just as severe as his battle was. We have idols that we elevate in our lives all the time.
and we have lust in our hearts and we have pride and we have deep root sins that need to be killed. And so, Lord, help us to run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, help us all in this room to end well with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we know, Lord, that comes from your grace alone in us. So, Lord, help us to be putting sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be encouraging one another and walking alongside one another and holding each other accountable and being a church family where it's safe to, to live the Christian life and know that there are others that come alongside us and can encourage us and love us. So, Lord, let us leave this place this week looking at this tragic example. And, Lord, as an example for us to avoid, an error for us to avoid, that we would walk in step with the Spirit. We would walk with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We would truly run the race with endurance for the glory of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.